There's an old spiritual that goes, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. This is not quite correct. In Joshua chapter 6, the walls do in fact come tumbling down, but there is really not much of a battle. Neither Joshua nor anybody else does much fighting. It is the Lord, the Lord who had just appeared to Joshua at the end of chapter 5, which we looked at last week, the commander of the heavenly host with a sword in his hand. He is the combatant in this scene. And so we'll look at this famous text, the first battle in Canaan, under two headings, the instructions and the battle. The instructions and the battle. The instructions in verses 1 through 7, and then the battle in verses 8 through 21. So, first the instructions. The instructions. We're told at the beginning, Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, that the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. And no one went into the city and no one went out. This is similar to a note we saw earlier in the book that Israel was to cross the Jordan when it overflowed its banks. The note tells us that there's a daunting obstacle in the way. The city has heard. Rumor travels, word spreads. They've heard of the great deeds of the God of Israel in the Exodus and on the other side of the Jordan. But other than Rahab, no one, at least no one recorded, has responded in faith and repentance. Instead, this city goes into lockdown. And the question arises, is how is Israel's inexperienced, ill-equipped army going to breach these defenses? And the answer comes very quickly in verse 2. The Lord, and this is quite possibly, almost certainly, still the Lord appearing as the commander of the Lord of hosts with the sword in his hand, the one whom Joshua encountered right before chapter 6. That Lord says to Joshua, See, that first little word is important. He says to him, Look, or see, or behold. It tells us, or it points to appearances, and how they can often be deceiving. Things are often not as they appear. The fortified cities of the enemies of God are not nearly, then or now, as formidable and as secure as they appear. One of the wonderful things about evil is it's a parasitic phenomenon. It destroys itself. It can only live off the existence of the good. Yes, it can do a lot of damage, but it will destroy itself. It's a self-defeating thing. Lunacy only lasts a generation or two or three. 
these big fortified cities, they crumble. And we need, as followers of Christ, to see the world aright. That means we need to try to at least narrate what's happening around us to ourselves properly. A lot of us are very poor at this. Right? There are people who narrate the stuff around them and they're in a constant frenzied terror over it. They're, they're like the, they're like the uh, sluggard in the book of Proverbs who says, there's a lion outside, I'm going to be slain. They're narrating the events that they see to them, but always at some sort of fever pitch of fear and insecurity. Then there are other people who don't even pay attention. Part of the whole function of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is to say to you, you have to see the world right. You have to look at it right. That's, that's why the symbolism of the Bible is there. Rome thought of itself as this indestructible, eternal power and force for good. And John tells the early Christian churches, you should think of Rome as a beast arising out of the sea. You should not see things the way everybody else sees them. So anyway, the commander of the Lord says to Joshua, look, behold. And so any proper seeing begins with seeing the warrior God. And the warrior God is reposing in his splendor. And he's laughing, as he does in Psalm 2 at the feeble attempts of men and nations to athwart his purposes for his people. God exists in transcendent serenity. He's not ruffled. And so the Lord says to Joshua, See, I have, past tense, delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. The battle, if we must continue to call it that, the battle is already won. There's not a shred of doubt about the outcome. Nor is there a shred of doubt about the outcome of the church's history. Not one. There's not one shred of doubt about the outcome of cosmic history. Zero. Empires will rise and fall. Centuries will lapse. But the immortal God in his splendor, shall indeed accomplish his purposes. And so the land here, as we've seen, is a gift. And in a very real sense, it's already given. This is sort of like an Old Testament version of this famous idea, which, which we've said here numerous times, I believe, that the, the commandments of God, the things he commands, rest upon... The prior action of God. God acts for you, then he commands you to do something. Often we say the imperatives rest on the indicatives. The commands of God rest on what God has done. This is how it works. And this principle, that the commandments rest on the fact of God's prior action, it's this which delivers the Christian life 
Christian obedience from the idea of legalistically obtaining merit. So here, the indicative, the action's been stated. Here it is. The land, its king, and its fighting men have already been given to you. That's a wonderful piece of pre-battle intelligence. And so we, now we get the imperatives. And those are in verses 3 through 5. And to summarize them, they're to march around the city for seven days, seven times on the seventh day. Right? They're, they're basically to be an army divided into a front and rear guard with seven priests blowing seven trumpets in front of the ark between the front and rear guards. And then when the trumpets sound this long blast, which will be on the seventh day, the army will give a loud shout, the walls will collapse, the people will go in, conquer the undefended city. Now, the first thing to say about this is that this is not, in any traditional sense, a military strategy. Right? This is not going to work in the situation room. What this is, is a worship service, a convocation, a special week-long convocation, right? This text should be known as the liturgy of Jericho and not the battle of Jericho. All of the spiritual preparation, and we saw this last week, that Joshua has made the people undergo circumcision, Passover. It comes to its culmination here. Worship is warfare. It's not an effete thing for people who you know, don't know what to do with their Sunday mornings. And this, in this text, what you have is liturgical warfare. And by liturgical, we mean the work of the people of God when they assemble together to worship God. And that's what this hour here is. It's an hour of kingdom warfare in the heavenly places. And so now, as then, the pressing need of the church is worship. It's always at the center because God is at the center. This is what the church needs as she confronts the hostile powers of the world. The church's first instincts are never purely political. Our weapons are not secular political weapons. And they're certainly not military weapons. They're more lethal than that. Word, sacraments, prayer, praise, confession. This is our holy arsenal. And this is the heart and soul of how the church fights. Fights in the world. Against the world. For the sake of the world. Right? Fundamentalists are good at fighting against the world. Liberals are good at fighting for the sake of the world. We fight against the world for the sake of the world. But we fight... So all Christian warfare, it begins 
And it eventually ends in the public worship of the church. So that nothing in heaven or nothing on earth is as as potent or as politically consequential as what you in the spirit do here. That's re-narrating the world to yourself. And that's part of what this text is intended to teach us. This is why you shouldn't miss church. Not because you get a gold star or not because it's some sort of moralistic thing, but because it's cosmic warfare. So, this is not a battle. This is a liturgy. Or better, a liturgical battle. And the victory is a liturgical victory. And the Lord is at the center of this. The repeated use of sevens in the text. The number of divine fullness. The number of of perfection. It confirms this. It underscores the fullness of the presence and the power possessed by the warrior God. And so the march is a holy procession. It's a kind of declaration of intent to the city of Jericho. It's probably also an implicit offer of repentance. And the trumpets are blowing on every day. In fact, the first six days are one long instrumental prelude. And when the trumpets blow in Scripture, they are calling for an assembly, a holy assembly. Assembled for holy liturgical war. That's what trumpets do. They were, they were blown when Israel broke camp. They were blown again when the ark came into Jerusalem. And so this whole pilgrimage of Israel from Sinai, just after the Exodus, into Zion, moves into its next phase here. And at the center of it all is the Lord in the midst of his people, in the ark, which, as we said, is his mobile throne. He is around, gathered around him, the priests and the people. He's the warrior in the text. And so, in verses 6 and 7, Joshua, who's the mediator, he's the public representative of Yahweh in this army, this liturgical army, he commands the priest to take up the ark. And then he commands the army to advance. So the battle itself, if you will, is our next point. So verses 8 through 14 describe this activity for days 1 and 2, and then they tell us they did this for six days. You might remember that back at the Exodus, at the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's army closing in and the Israel's backed up against the sea, they were told, stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. And similarly here in verse 10, Israel's told, don't give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Don't say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. Now it's six days of a prelude an instrumental prelude, and one day of a shout. All the people have to do is simply obey the liturgical cues. 
These are not hard instructions. The seventh day comes in verse 15. They get up at daybreak. They march around the city seven times. And the seventh time, the priests sound the loud trumpet blast. And then Joshua gives the command. Shout. For the Lord has given you the city. Even this is not, strictly speaking, a battle cry. It's a cry of victory already accomplished. Which is what the public praise of the church is as well. We shout to the Lord who has triumphed and who has conquered and who summons us into the holy warfare that points to the consummation of that triumph. This is why we sing. We sing because the Lord has already granted you an inheritance. The shout itself, though, it doesn't actually come until verse 20. And we, we get a sort of set of aside uh, from Joshua in verses 17 through 19. And this is really the heart, sort of the theological meat of the passage. Verse 17. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. The word for devoted here is crucial. It, it speaks of a unique, total form of warfare. There are no Geneva Conventions that are going to be followed here. The Hebrew word is harem. And this is sometimes referred to as harem warfare. And this, the authorization for this goes back to Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. And there Moses tells Israel that in the coming warfare in the land, with the Canaanite cities, not with those outside the cities, not with other nations, but with the, with the enemies in the land, they are to leave us alive nothing that breathes. They are to devote such cities to complete destruction. They are to make no covenant with them. They are to show them no mercy. That's what it means to be devoted to the Lord here. The city is devoted to the Lord. That means it's devoted by being destroyed. As a kind of offering by fire to the God of Israel. This is holy war for the possession of the Holy Land. Of course, there's an, there's an offer of repentance. We saw that in Rahab. But for the cities that remain entrenched in their idolatry and in their hostility to Israel and her God, the ordained end for them is complete destruction. And the text emphasizes this. It goes out of its way to use this word. Look at verse 18. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. The word devoted and the word destruction, are, they have the same root there. Israel must devote the city of Jericho to destruction. It must not touch the devoted things, and by that it means you can't take any of the spoils of the war. You can't take any booty from the, from the battlefield. If you do touch the spoils of war, you, Israel, will be devoted to destruction. Now, this form of warfare raises numerous questions in the minds of many people, and I know that. Some of you have told me this. 
Um, and I am not going to address them here. But suffice it to say that this is one area where many unbelievers charge the God of the Bible with being bloodthirsty and unjust. And so, as I've mentioned before, Lord willing, next week's whole sermon will be about this. Right, the whole sermon is going to be essentially a defense of this manner of warfare. So please don't miss next week. Cancel your vacation. Bring your friends. Um, because it'll be crucial to understanding the book of Joshua. Look, this is the heart of the book. This question of holy war. And so you have to look this thing in the eye and say, what is it? What does it mean? And how does it fit into the Bible's bigger narrative? So Lord willing, we'll do that next week. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of the conclusion, though. There's nothing unjust about it. So verse 19 gives an exception to the ban. That is, to the devotion of the city to destruction. It says, all the gold... And the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and they have to go into his treasury. That is, they have to be associated with the tabernacle. This is an important symbolic act, actually. It means the gods of Jericho, the gods of the land, are now subjugated to the God of Israel. And so we finally come now to this battle that wasn't a military battle. The whole thing is given in two verses. Um, verse 20 and 21, they tell us this, the tale. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in. They took the city. And we get a summary of their obedience in verse 22. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, donkey. So, without, again, anticipating next week's engagement with this, let's put the biblical teaching here this way. Everything living is devoted to the Lord, either by destruction or by holy worship. Everything is offered to the Lord by fire, either unto destruction or unto purification and glory. Everybody pays in blood, either Christ or their own. And Rahab, remember, it's important to remember that Rahab's salvation stands out as a sign. And there are other signs in the Joshua narrative that there is an opportunity for repentance and deliverance, an open option for those who have heard of God's great works and who submit to them in faith. And faith, simple as it is, faith in the Lord God, this warrior God, is the key thing we should learn from this text. Because in Hebrews 11, the only New Testament text that comments on this incident says, the writer there says, by faith, by faith, not by any military tactics at all, but by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled liturgically for seven days. So here... The faith works by trusting the warrior God who is present in the ark. And that central work is obedient worship. And so we stand, of course, now in the New Testament. 
And Jesus Christ, as we've seen, is the greater Joshua. He's appeared. He's both the mediator. He's the commander of the Lord of hosts' armies. And he's the incarnate ark. The place where God's glory dwells. And he is in our midst. And so this brings us back to the simple, central charge of the text. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the commander of the Lord's hosts. Worship him, for he's great in our midst. He's already given us the land, the new heavens and the new earth, which the meek are to inherit. And thus, we can relax a little bit. We know that the cities are not as fortified as they appear. And so we worship him with calm, composed hope. For now as then, the overwhelming power comes not from ourselves, but from God. Worship and wait. For we will all shout when the walls of his and our enemies fall. Amen.